What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. For his thoughts on where we should be heading in 2024, welcome now our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So Larry, welcome back, great to have you here. We've talked about some aspects of this before. I mean, I could say it's guns, butter, and deficit. Uh, the question of defense spending, the question of investing in future productivity, question of deficit. If you were the architect once again of US fiscal policy over the longer term, where should we be heading? Let's start with the recognition that our fiscal problems are much more serious than they were in 1991 or 1993. Then we had budget, budget debts uh, relative to GDP in the 30% range with out-year deficits perhaps in the 5% range on honest forecasts. Today we have a debt-to-GDP ratio above 100% with out-year debts in uh, the 10% of GDP range. So we've got a much more serious problem, number one. Number two, then we were reaping a Cold War dividend from the end of the Cold uh, War, and we could reasonably expect defense spending as a share of GDP to be falling. Today, though it's not reflected in the CBO forecast, Almost certainly, we are going to have to substantially increase defense spending and spending on a broader range of what, in a sense, are international security activities, issues like uh, global health, issues like resilience, most importantly, uh, climate change. So we've got a very different kind of uh, problem. There are places where we're going to need to cut government spending. We need to control cost growth in health care. But we've already controlled it substantially over the next decade. And I suspect the challenge is going to be to maintain our momentum, not lose that momentum. And it's going to be very difficult to get even more momentum out of uh, health care uh, costs. So, so Larry, you were there in the Clinton administration when there was the tax increase from the Clinton administration that got through politically. It's never popular to increase taxes. Now, what effect did that have on productivity, and to what extent was that masked by the internet coming online that really increased productivity? So one of the questions people ask is, if you increase taxes, are you going to reduce productivity? No. First of all, the last time we did it, in 1993, productivity soared afterwards. When we had much higher tax rates in the United States in the 50s, the 60s, and the early 70s, productivity growth was more rapid than it has been in recent years. The vast majority of the funds that flow into venture capital come from institutions like state pension funds, university endowments that are tax-free uh, investments. It defies belief that the young Bill Gates, the young Mark Zuckerberg, the young Steve Jobs would have not done their projects if they thought they would have had to pay 
a bit higher capital gains uh, taxes, and we would have been uh, without uh, those companies. Larry, we have our set of challenges in the United States economically. What about China, the second largest economy in the world? I know you've just gotten back from China. They reported GDP numbers that were encouraging, better than they thought. Some people questioned those. At the same time, the demographic numbers were bad. They've got a real problem with foreign direct investment. What did you learn from your China trip? I, I came away as I went with substantial concerns about uh, China's uh, growth prospects. They have so much savings, so much money that in a normal country would be flowing into household uh, consumption. In the United States, household consumption is 70% of GDP. In Japan or Korea, in their glory years, it was something like the high 50s or 60% of GDP. In China, it's in the high 30s. So they have this huge foregoing of consumption. And then the question is, where's all that money going to go? And for a while, it went into exports and trying to get demand. But the rest of the world isn't going to tolerate huge increases in China's exports. For a while, it went into real estate, but they've got vast acres, not acres, called square kilometers of empty, half-finished apartment buildings because of overbuilding. For a while, it went into infrastructure. But they told me about, for example, one of the most remote provinces in uh, China that has, I don't know, 20 of the world's top uh, 100 highest, longest suspension bridges. And, you know, that's just a kind of wasteful overinvestment. And when you have wasteful overinvestment, not long after, you have bad debt. And when you have lack of demand, you start having deflation. And when you have deflation and you have debt, the debt gets more burdensome and the whole thing cycles. That's basically why Japan had a very weak generation of economic growth after 1990. And China is facing similar kinds of challenges. And Never count the Chinese out. And finally, Larry, give us your thoughts on one specific transaction. We have Nippon Steel seeking to buy U.S. Steel. We've heard from regulatory authorities it's going to take a good long time. They have some concerns about it. This is a test for the Biden administration. Has their commitment to resilience and industrial policy been a serious commitment based on a desire to strengthen and make more resilient the economy? Or is it a cloak for protectionist pandering to traditional uh, industries with no genuine national security uh, rationale? There is no remotely plausible national security rationale for questioning the Nippon Steel, Nippon U.S. Steel uh, transaction. The uh, Japan is a staunch ally. The production will continue to take place in the United States. The result will be the infusion of more capital 
into the U.S. Uh, steel industry. The result will be lower priced steel as an input when 100 times as many U.S. workers are in industries that use steel as are in uh, the steel industry itself. So this should be a layup for policymakers who have the right motivations. And if it's not, it is a sign of very troubling economic nationalism on the part of the United States. Okay, Larry, thank you so much for being back with us again this week. That is Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.